Welcome, my name is Lynn H. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this workshop. Hi. Way down there. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we begin, uh, we'd like to ask all cell phones and other electronic device equipment be turned off. Even if you think it's off, please double check. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. OA members are reminded when sharing to speak to your recovery in the program of Overeaters Anonymous only. To protect our anonymity, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. If there is press in the room, please do not take any unauthorized pictures or identify anyone using their full name. And there will be audio recordings of this workshop, which you may purchase outside in the foyer, and the forms are down on your seats. This workshop will have speakers, have three speakers, followed by an Ask It Basket questions. And during the workshop, please keep the basket moving. And the basket is blue, and the timer Isabel has it. The topic for this session is Steps 1, 2, 3, Finding Direction, and the Principles of Hope and Faith. We will begin with a selection from For Today, page 3, Compulsive Overeaters Recovering in OA Have Reason to Believe in the Power of Hope. It is the saving grace of our illness, a life-sustaining force that motivates us to keep going. Hope brought me to Overeaters Anonymous. I needed to believe that I had within me the power to change, to grow. The joy of life today is the constant flowering of hope. Let's welcome Catherine, our first speaker. 20 minutes, I think. Okay. Okay. Oh. And your timer is about right there. Good morning, everyone. I'm Catherine. I'm a compulsive eater and bulimic, and um, I'll be the first speaker. Hi, Catherine. Hi. I just realized I have my pictures in my, um, in my backpack. So I'll pass around my before and after pictures. Um, this is getting out of my comfort zone this morning. I've never done anything like this. I've spoken, but never at this level. I was asked to do service at the meet at the convention. I didn't know that this was going to be what they were going to ask me to do. I was hoping it wasn't, um, but here I am. And I thought, what a great place to do this because, you know, you're my peeps. And um, because of you, I have the opportunity to do this. And it's, a, it's been a safe place for me to expand and grow my recovery um, because I, it's that fight or flight thing is in, you know, kicking in for me and I, I want to flee. And when I used, and that's what I did, I, I fled to food. Uh, and I did that without even knowing it. It just, I had to eat, I had to eat eventually eat or I felt like it was going to explode and of course I did explode with the food um, so just to qualify I first came into Overeaters Anonymous or got introduced to it in 1979 I stayed a few years and went out for various reasons and then um, back in and I've been and in, in lots of relapse my story has a lot of um, 
30-day abstinence, 45, six months, mostly shorter than that, chronic, and then I'd have a, a binge meal or whatever. Sometimes it was longer, and it definitely progressed. It progressed into bulimic behavior, and, um, and as we know, the disease progresses. So I have right. Um, I have back-to-back abstinence of 15 years now. No binging, no comp- none of my compulsive foods, which for me are um, sugars, uh, dessert-type foods, and nocturnal eating and uh, purging. And there's um, peanut butter spread. That's another issue for me. And I'm maintaining about 55, 60 pound weight loss. Because I stopped weighing myself, I was not at my highest weight when I got this initial app, this um, 15 years of abstinence, and I'm grateful for it. It's because of you and this program. So I'll just start talking about the first three steps: and honesty, hope, and faith. So I absolutely know I'm a compulsive eater, and. Um, When I first came into the rooms, what I was grateful for was that there were other people like me. Because back then, you didn't hear anything about it. And it was very, um, I didn't understand what was going on. I just knew that I couldn't stop eating. And I had these behaviors, and I was very embarrassed by them, and my weight was going up and down. I couldn't stay on I tried diets, and they didn't work. And I didn't understand how people ate normally. I just, the concept of, putting food on my plate and stopping, just stopping when you're full. I did not get it. Um, I carried extra weight growing up. Probably the reason I wasn't morbidly obese or anything was because it was controlled. My family, we didn't have a ton of food. Um, my, um, I mean, we had plenty of food, actually. But we weren't allowed to just go in the kitchen and grab food and do that kind of thing. And, um, however... I just noticed with me, the difference between me and my normal eaters, especially in retrospect when I did my food inventory, kind of that first step, um, and done multiple ones after. It's kind of, you learn so much the longer you're in recovery and the more distant you are from the disease, and yet it's right there, right there waiting to pop up. What I learned was that, um, and noticed that other people and friends didn't do what I did with food. If they could take sweets or leave it, they could take a half of something, and I couldn't stop. If I had, if I was uh, selling Girl Scout cookies and I bought myself a box, the box was gone real quick. Um, if I could go to the store and buy five candy bars for twenty-five cents, which you could do when I was that age, I would eat them all. I didn't, uh, and and it progressed. It, my eating disorder, so the physical thing was definitely there. Was it when I was a little, when I was a child, I, it, it, I don't remember like it having a big pull on me. I mean, I had, I was, I had an active life. Um, other than I do remember when there were holidays and opportunities to really, uh, when there's a lot of food around, I would get just so full and stuffed. Uh, and, and I also was, um, I didn't notice it so much as people bringing it to my attention that I was heavier than other kids, and I was made fun of by my siblings and that kind of thing. So it it progressed, and it really kicked in. Uh, My first diet was like age, I was, I think, junior, 
my first diet, I was junior high. And um, it progressed from there, just um, dieting and binging and then using um, different kind of drugs to control my weight and other things to control my weight and exercising and um, and starving, just that kind of crazy behavior and eventually bulimic behavior and the disease progressed. Um, so I got that, and my life was definitely unmanageable as I got older. I started, it really kicked in in junior high, and it was, I was sexually assaulted, and I, I and I, and I just started the fight or flight thing. Again, I didn't get it, but suddenly food was really, I looked forward to um, just having my food. That was my comfort, you know, my weekend stuff, my weekend and, and the evenings and that kind of thing. Um, getting up and eating in the middle of the night, just different behaviors around food. I felt this underlying anxiety uh, underlying stress, and it seemed, I thought I was hungry. I thought I needed to eat, and um, so I would sneak it and do all kinds of things to to get food. Um, and in and I, in college, it progressed, and it took different forms for me. There were times when I could stop having the sugar, and then the uh, uh, I'd went like two years without having sugar, but I was still binging on other stuff. So that's kind of where it was. And as far as my life unmanageable, yeah, because I didn't know how to do my life. I wanted to be everybody but what I was. And I thought it was about what I looked like and what my body looked like and being thin. And, of course, I wanted to be blonde and blue-eyed and freckles, you know, the California thing. And that's not going to happen with what I look like. Um, and also my life, it was just I wherever I was, I wanted to be somewhere else. I was impatient. I was... I. I was self-conscious. Um, I could get out of myself to do things. I was a mom. I was. I also had a life that looked okay. I um, I became a mom pretty young. Had a house. Had the job and all that kind of stuff. And and I was still miserable. And then I was in a relationship and I was miserable in that too. My. As far as uh, my higher power and what happened with that was that I was raised Catholic, and um, I was raised, and I'm not saying, I'm not blaming this on anybody, but I looked at God as like up, way above me, and I was, I was um, a bad person, and I had to try to figure out how to be good, and I couldn't do that. No matter what I did, I wasn't good enough, and I sinned and all that. And I went to church, and I didn't understand what they're talking about a lot of the time. Um, it was also during Vatican II, which was cool because I, I loved the other part. The I loved the uh, masses. I loved the like they had guitar masses, and I loved CYO camp and all that good stuff. And yet there was that still that thing is I wasn't good enough. I wasn't a good enough person, and there was no way I was going to ever be what I was supposed to be. Um, so that constant thinking I was bad and there was something wrong with me. And um, so that was kind of my perception of, of, of how that manifested itself for me. And God wasn't center in my life. God was somewhere else in my life. Like there's my life and then there's my Catholic part of my life. And I thought you had to be Catholic because that's what I was told, that there's no other religion to be but Catholic and heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff. So when I got into program, I'd been going in and out of the, um, I was raised Catholic, going to church and all that. 
And I pulled away from the faith just because I just couldn't deal with it anymore. The tenets of it and I and the beliefs around it, I just couldn't tolerate that anymore. And I stepped away from it. And um, as I was developing a higher power, it felt really uncomfortable, but my sponsor said, you know, and I read in these rooms that you, you figure out, like, what's your conception of a higher power? And I definitely knew it couldn't, it felt weird for it to be something other than what I thought it was supposed to be. But I go, okay. And my sponsor kept saying, higher power, higher power. And that's what I heard in these rooms, higher power, higher power. Not God, higher power. And so I go, okay. And so I started writing and working on that. And really, for me, my higher power, I am back in, um, I am, because I was raised Catholic and Christian, that's kind of just my, what I know. And so... I was searching out different things and getting all confused. And what I realized is, okay, that fits for me. And I found a church home, and it's not the Catholic faith. It's close, but it's much more open and liberal, and, and it's a journey for me. My, my spirituality is a journey, and it just and it is Christian because that just is what I know. And instead of looking and trying to figure things out all the time, I, want, I need to live it and be on a journey. And so my higher power is... Some, is um, loving, kind, compassionate, and my my job, my goal is to go in that direction, in, in in to go in that direction toward light, toward love, toward God, and not about what I want. What it's about what God wants for me. It's about God wants to use me to be, because um, I I can't tell you how many times I got on my knees and cried and couldn't stand like. This disease and... How am I doing on time? You still have eight minutes. Okay. I'll give you a warning when it's fine. Okay, thanks. Boy, this goes by fast. It's crazy. Um, Anyway, I just remember saying, please, God, God, help me. And why wasn't God helping me? And why wasn't God doing it for me? And and I don't know why. And and that hope thing, I'm not sure when they talk about hope. I didn't really, I don't, I didn't really come to my higher power like, oh, you're going to fix it. It was like, I can't do this anymore. And I, I can't do this. And it says in the 12 steps, this is what you do. And I said, okay, this is how I'm going to do it. I made a decision. And the same with my faith. Uh, It was kind of like, there's all kinds of ways to celebrate faith and get closer to the God of our understanding or your understanding or whatever. And I don't have any judgment on it. I just know for me, okay, this makes sense. I'll go with the parts that I think make sense and and I believe in. And it's a journey. And it's about me being a vessel for, to do God's will. That's what I look at the whole fit, the whole, um, hope, hope thing. I, I didn't, I didn't, turn it over thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to be, you're going to get me abstinent now. It was, I was desperate and I had, I, I, I hit a bottom 15 years ago and, and um, something just clicked. Something clicked that, okay, if I don't, it was an incident that happened and if I, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to lose my relationship. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose, and I'm a, like the morbid, suicidal kind of, I go, I start. I take that first compulsive bite, and I'm, and I really am. I'm down into the depths of depression, 
and wanting to take my... And that's where I would go out. I probably wouldn't have gone out from a heart attack. It'd probably be from choking on food or something, literally, running into someone because I'm shoving food in my mouth, driving in the car, or um, taking my life. That's where it would go for me. Um, And then... Turning my will and my life over to my higher power, I do that all the time. And and this these 12 steps, they're the foundation of my life. They're not, God isn't over there, or higher power's over there, and then I have my life. My life is this. This is the foundation, and um, my spirit, my, my Christian faith, and higher power, and spiritual walk, that is my life. That's, I want to go in that direction. Um, the other, there's just an analogy. It's like where you focus is where you're going to go. So if I focus on the negativity, negativity, and, and um, the self kind of, I call it the demonic saboteur, that voice that's kind of beating myself up all the time, and and negative, and and different things you get from the secular world. It's just crazy the stuff we get. You know, lean in, and you can do it yourself, and you can reinvent yourself, and all this. Thank you. Um, and you, you, you know, decide what you want, and then you manifest it, and that kind of thing. Well, for me, it's really about turning my will and life over to my higher power. And um, an analogy is: a few weeks ago, I was riding my bike, and my focus got distracted, and I was going around. I was going around this estuary, and it's it's um, it used to be it's a it's an eco eco friendly bird friendly. Um, tertiary uh, waste management plant. So you, it's beautiful, and it's it's actually well known now. So I'm riding my bike. Well, I I took my focus off the path, and I almost ran right into like the pond in the pond. Well, it was dry, but I can't imagine what was in there. And it was because my my I got pointing toward you know the yuck. And so what I need to do, and that is where I can go with my um, spirit, not my spirituality. That's can where I go with that thinking in my head. So I have to get pointing toward my higher power and toward that good orderly direction. To that um, The things that are going to take me to being of maximum service, of getting out of myself, of, of really having joy and, and peace, in my life, and that's focusing in that direction, and that's what I work on every day, many times a day. I start with prayer and meditation in the morning. I read spiritual books. I write. I write every morning, um, most mornings, and do a little bit of meditation. I don't do that very long, but I spend a half an hour or so doing that. I pray constantly throughout the day. I, um, I, I'm developing my um, church family spiritual path. I'm working on that. And, and again, it's, it's all a constant journey. This way, I love this way of life. I can't imagine life without it. It's, it's just giving me not only recovery and abstinence, but um, a way of life to deal with a lot of stuff that's gone in my life the last few years. Um, especially, and it's very clear my life's unmanageable because life has not gone the way I want it to go. Um, the first marriage didn't. The first marriage failed. Um, this, my, I was married again, and 
he turned out to be a sociopath and I lost a lot materialistically. And then um, a couple years ago, I, my, um, the night I announced my engagement to what was going to be the most, you know, finally the good, healthy relationship, <laughs> that night he passed away. So it's, life, is a, life is life, you know. But I also have great stuff. It's time. Oh, oh, thank you. So the good news is that um, I have a stronger faith. I've been able to serve people. I have grandkids I hang out with. I have this fellowship. I've taken trips and done things I never thought I could do. Um, I've learned to be single and walk through these things. And I don't, do I like being single? No. Do I like, I miss the, I miss the night thing. I miss having that person there at night. I'm pretty independent, but just having that companion to share your day with. I'm here. There's no one to call and say, hi, honey, I'm here. I look forward to, you know, we got here safe, and I can't wait to tell you about it when I get home. There's that person in my life. But the most important relationship is my relationship with my higher power. And so this has given me the opportunity to really dig in and work even harder at my recovery. And the best part of it all is that I've been abstinent through the whole thing. I have no desire to go compulsively eat or do that because I want. I know the solution is is the steps and my um, and my recovery program and being abstinent. That's the most important thing. I'm not going to have anything. So that's what's carried me through all this, and I'm so grateful. Thanks for letting me be here and being my first experience with this. That's it. Thank you, Catherine. Please keep the Ask It basket circulating. Is it out there? Good, thank you. So keep it going around because we'll do the Ask It basket at the end. Our second speaker is Amy. Hi, I'm Amy, a grateful recovering compulsive overeater. Hi, Amy. Hi. So glad to be here. Um, when I saw that steps one, two, and three were available for speaking, I was really excited because um, I think steps one, two, and three, well, I, one, I think it get, they get repeated in the steps again. I have this, I have this theory <laughs> and that, it, that this all comes back in, in steps like six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. So um, um, for me, uh, one, two, and three is the foundation of my recovery. And just a, a little bit about... Um, uh, where I came from. So um, I was, uh, uh, and have been the kind of compulsive overeater that, um, you know, I never never had breakfast because as soon as I had that first meal, I just felt like I just couldn't stop eating. Um, I would try to delay my first meal to as late in the day as possible. And, um, you know, being hypoglycemic, and I didn't know that at the time, um, by the time that came up, which was maybe 4 o'clock, all bets were off, you know. And I would just, you know, it didn't matter if it didn't have glue and hot pepper on it. I, that, that was, it was game. And like, I, I could possibly eat that. So um, what happened for me, I'm really extremely grateful. Um, and I, I call it grace. There was, I've had a huge amount of grace in my life. And in fact, I, I almost feel like I can attribute my entire um, recovery to grace from my higher power um, because um, I've been abstinent for over 30 years, a day at a time, 
and uh, trying to figure out my age, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just give you this one. All right, I'm going to give it to you. I came in when I was 19, and um, uh, a month later I was 20. That will tell you that I'm over 50. There I go. Um, and um, and and my life has changed a lot. It would have changed a lot anyway had I actually been alive, if uh, you know, unless the food had killed me, which. Is, is where it was for me. Um, so when I talk about steps one, two, and three, when I came into program, there was no uh, OA literature. Um, in fact, when I was in program for a couple of years, they started to circulate. Uh, I, I started out in New York, and they were circulating a, um, a photocopied sheets of what became the 12 steps of OA. The traditions, I actually wasn't, I didn't see the traditions being circulated. They probably were, but I only remember the steps being circulated. And it was in this like, you know, you turn the page and you look and like, oh, you're supposed to give your feedback and stuff like that. So I grew up with this book here, which is um, Alcoholics Anonymous, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. And this is my original book. So for the people listening to recording, it's the little blue one. Um, and all of my notes, and I put notes in the front and on some of the pages, and this is when I was in my first 30 days I wrote these things. Uh, so it's always interesting for me to go back because this isn't like a journal where I go, life sucks, blah, blah, blah. These were notes I took when I was in meetings and people were talking about these things. So the spiritual principles, which were here, um, amazingly are the same spiritual principles which, I, which guide me today. So... Um, I can tell you with my experience on steps one, two, and three, bless you, um, I came into this program, okay, so the first time I came into the program, which was in November of 1985, I was not surrendered. I was, it was suggested that I come to a meeting um, by a combination of people. I had a therapist I was working with. I had uh, an aunt who had been in OA and a family friend. So I went to a meeting. It was a huge meeting. And um, it was like 135 people. It was uh, in New York, the York 11 meeting. So that, uh, for anybody who's, who was there during that time, knows all about that meeting. And, um, and, uh, and there were men there. Uh, I didn't realize the extent of my issues um, with my dad and so forth. So when I saw all this going on, I'm like, no, these people are really sick. I'm not like this. And, um, and the speaker was like a triple winner, right? I mean, he was just addicted to everything. And I was just like, and I, I lasted for about 15 minutes, and then I just had to leave. When I came crawling back in February of 1986, I was, um, I was in a place of desperation. And as my sponsor likes to say, desperation is a great place to be in. So when um, Bill... And Bob and all these folks founded AA. You know, they had always talked about this low bottom. And in OA, I felt like I was the low bottom because I was the person who, um, you know, I was a suicidal person. It was never fun for me to eat food, like ever. Like any time I overate at any time, it wasn't like, oh, I never had that. Uh, I always went into self-flagellation. So first thing I did to hurt myself was compulsively overeat. And then the second thing is I would beat the crap out of myself. And they talk about um, in the, the, um, uh, the 12 and 12, they talk about in step one um, that they had to, you know, this program, sure, it's fine if you're like, you know, living on the street and, you know, and, and you've lost everything. You know, that's, you know, that's how they originally thought this program would work. And they realized that they had to raise the bottom because the discussion was even years before, People had that drink, 
or we started to do the binging. There were attitudes and behaviors that we were engaged in that were a complete lineup for what that end result would be. Now, I would suspect it's a little different as a compulsive overeater because, you know, we were fed food when we came out of the womb and, you know, having too much or having too little or whatever we do with food, you know, was, was acceptable or not, but it wasn't like having booze. Um, but for me, the bottom line is because I work with a lot of people or I see a lot of people in the room who may not feel like I'm at a bottom. I think the important thing is there's always for places we can go further down. It's the, to me, it's the desperation. How desperate did I become before I was willing to do um, what needed to be done for this program? And for me, really, the first three steps were the hardest because admitting that I was powerless over food, I was so assured I was in control of every single thing in my life. I had so much self-will, and it had worked for me in many areas of my life, in particular in academics. So I was a teenager when I came in. So for me, it was like, you know, academics. If I study hard and I do this, I'll get the grades I want. That's how it started out. Um, and um, what I saw happening is, as I was on many diets during that time, I also thought if I got to the weight I wanted to get to, I would somehow like myself. I would be attractive to members of the opposite sex and my life would just be fine. But that, that formula never worked because once I even lost enough weight that I was like feeling like I was in a normal size, well, I sure as hell didn't like myself still. And I really didn't attract members of the opposite sex. I was still living in my own private hell. Um, which reminds me that um, I can have a desperation. And, and when I came into OA, the desperation wasn't because I was so heavy. The desperation was because I was so crazy in my head. I could not stop obsessing about food and acting on that obsession. I could not stop. I felt like I had been chained to a chair with my hands behind my back and somebody was shoving food down my throat that I didn't want. It was a very visual and violent experience for me. And that's how my experience has always been around compulsive overeating. So I had been uh, to places before, I guess, where, okay, you know, I had a food problem. I had a, you know, I went to diet clubs and so forth. And the big difference about OA was after you, I felt like I was broken down by step one, like I am powerless over food and my life has become unmanageable. I was given something amazing, and that was step two. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And in those simple first in step one, I figured if they wrote step one, it must mean that other people are like me, and I thought I was alone, right? Always. I am the only one going through. And part of that was my martyrdom complex also. No one suffers like I do. If anyone had the kind of life I had, they eat too. That whole thing. And then coming into step two and hearing that there was a solution. It says it in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. There is a solution. And it is a set of spiritual tools that have been laid at our feet. And those spiritual tools are really introduced to me in step two. And that gave me hope. It also gave me hope that I was in a room 
with other people who claimed, talked about eating just the way I had been eating, and I really got it. I was like, oh my God, that's what I do. And they weren't eating compulsively at that moment in that room. So I'd like to remind everybody, everybody in this room is abstinent right now. I don't see anyone putting food in their mouth, so officially you're all abstinent right now. And what this program gave me is this hope that, number one, not only wasn't I alone, but I didn't have to face not just the food problem and all that entails, but my life problems by myself anymore. Because I had a combination not only of a fellowship who identified with me in step one, but I had a higher power that was given to me in step two and then throughout the rest of the steps to help restore me to sanity. And I didn't have to do it alone. That door, that little light of hope, is what kept me coming back to eventually embrace faith. Faith in step three, that there was a power greater than myself that I could turn my will and my life over to that care, the care of that higher power. That literally, I have a higher power whose job it is, who wants the job, and he's, or he, she, it, whatever, is really good at this job and wants to do it and is actually carrying me over all this muck, the ucky pond that I don't want to land in. And I'm being carried that whole way. And my job is I have to release. So my hands are open. I have to release the control, not only over the food, but over everything else. And I would tell you that my journey, my 30-year journey, has really been still around this bedrock of you. I'm here because you, all of you, and I can look at every single one of you, and you know what it is to be a compulsive overeater, to want to stop and to not being able to stop for feeling like crap because we couldn't stop, for judging ourselves, for calling us fat, for saying, I'm too fat to go and do this. And I used to have to say to myself, even in early abstinence, well, then you can take you and your fat self, and you're going to go to the party anyway. You can show up. You can go for five minutes, and you can leave after that. But I was an isolator. If I had this body I didn't want to be in, then I certainly did not want to participate in life. And what I also get as part of my bedrock is this sense that I have a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity. And that sanity can be restored at any moment. It doesn't have to be restored on a Monday morning or on January 1st or the night before I go on my trip to Hawaii. It gets restored every second of the day because my abstinence and a change of my behavior can happen even at um, let's see, 3.31 on a Tuesday. I didn't think anything could change at 3.31 on a Tuesday. It always had a, the diet always had to start. The fresh start always had, they had to mark a day. I learned from here that I can be restored to sanity at any moment of the day when I connect. And the connect, whether I make it with you directly or go to a meeting or read literature, is the connection I make to my higher power makes me feel tethered to the world again and gives me that extra few seconds where I can pause, be more mindful, and not take that next self-destructive behavior, whether that is a food self-destructive behavior or a behavioral thing or something I want to say to somebody. But that pause can restore me to sanity. 
and then to turn my will and my life over to the care of my higher power. I will have to tell you, I mentioned I had a lot of grace. I had a lot of grace because I don't believe I turned my will and my life over the care of my higher power for, I won't even say I do it 100% today, but I have done it better in the last, say, four years than I did in the 26 preceding years. I can tell you I have no idea, no idea why I was able to maintain anything like an abstinence when I fought tooth and nail around a higher power. And one thing was, it was because of like, why would my higher power care whether I get a parking spot or not? Why would my higher power care whether my kid followed my directions or not? So that's where I thought I was in charge and I had to take over. And me against the world is awful. It is lonely, it is depressing, it is hard, it is exhausting. Um, there's not a lot of laughter in that. There's not a lot of peace, joy, or contentment. So when I have invited my higher power, and I don't do anything unless it works, I'm intensely practical. If you told me believing in this microphone would keep me from eating compulsively, and it did, well, I'd walk around with this microphone all day long. But I heard in this room that we were living life on a new dimension, one that was based, that was based in a faith with an infinite higher power and that we no longer had to depend on finite self. And that to me is an unbelievable vision. They also talk in the 12 steps, and this is later on, not in steps one, two, and three. It comes more around step 11, talking about our spiritual objectives. So when we have a plan for something in our lives, we usually like plan it out. Oh, we, we have an event, so we have to, you know, get the space and order the food and send the invitations and do the decorations. And for things that we have or we have a real objective about, maybe it's a career objective, we line up the steps we need to take to get there. And that same thing can be said about what is my spiritual objective? What is my spiritual goal? How do I want to be with my higher power? And I can actually line up some things which say, well, what does that mean for today? And I looked in the 12 steps and through it, and I, I'm somebody who actually walks around, and I'm happy to share them with you, uh, uh, index cards that I keep in my purse. And they're just quotes that come directly from the AA book book and the AA 12 steps and 12 traditions. And they remind me that on pages in the big book and in the 12 and 12, we actually talk about God's vision for us and that our relationship with God and maintaining that relationship on a daily basis is what is the foundation and the center for useful, joyful, humble lives. This is my, like, wow, could I, can you just imagine what it would be like to face a situation which would normally send us over the edge and have a peaceful, still, sane response to it. My whole life would be different even today if that's the way I always responded. So for me, that relationship with my higher power, which honestly I didn't feel like I had for 24 plus years in this program, and it evolves, so it's sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, you know, it always materializes if we work for it. Um, it is a different world for me now, probably because I hit some other places of desperation 
and I realized that what I was doing wasn't working. And if I really wanted happy, joyous, and free, I needed to go back to what the foundation of my recovery is, what's written everywhere, which we hear at every single meeting. Sometimes I hear it, sometimes I hear it. It's like, really? It says that? I didn't read that there. Well, yeah, the thing's been in print for a really long time. You know, you've read it a lot. But it didn't resonate for me. And then certain things resonate for me, and it makes all the difference in the world. So I am extremely grateful to be here, extremely grateful to be abstinent. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. And our third speaker is Jeannie. And want to make sure the Ask It basket is still circulating. Thank you very much. I'm going to move this whole podium closer to my lap. Well, I don't think it'll go that far. Phyllis and Dean were clear, and I just, I come from a loud Mexican cord? family. We're pulling more cord for you. Oh, that's fabulous. perfect. Okay. Thank you so much for accommodating me, Lynn. Sure, well, you're speaking. You get anything you want, my dear. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully that's close enough. Hello, my name is Jeannie. I'm a child of God and a grateful compulsive overeater. Hi, Jeannie. And I'm visiting you fine folks from Los Angeles, California. Okay, here's the deal. I registered on Wednesday. I thought, nobody's going to need service. I marked all the boxes. And here I am. Um, I have 29 years of abstinence. And I'm maintaining a 190-pound weight loss. And this is what I want to say. I'm old school. You know, I'm like Amy. When I came in, there was no OA literature. Um, I studied that big book. I studied that big book. I am not an easy sell on e either surrendering or faith. This is my third time around in Overeaters Anonymous. My first meeting was in 1975. I came in, I came into a meeting in Alhambra, California at a place called Crawford's California, Crawford Center in Alhambra. And there were about 250, 300 people in the room. And my best friend's ex-husband oh, come to the OA meeting. And she dragged me. And I had just had a child. And at the break, somebody came up to me and said, some little chicky from Santa Monica looking thin and fabulous, said, oh, can I help you? And I said, oh, no. <laughs> I didn't think I had anything in common with her. You know, in my mentality at that time, I was a poor girl from East L.A. And, like, I had, she, because she said to me, I'm from Santa Monica, which is, like, 30 miles away from where we were, um, do you need some help? I said, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I, uh... Went to a few more meetings for about three weeks. And I saw, this is like so sad for me to say, I saw women that looked like me, I'm 62, women that looked like me between 45 and 60 in those rooms. And I was 21. I didn't feel, I looked at the differences, not the similarities. I looked at the differences. So that wasn't a good attitude to have. And I saw the program. I came back about five or six years later, and um, 
here's the truth of the matter is I wanted a man. I was lonely. And I lost 100 pounds. And I found a husband. Found a nice alcoholic boy. And uh, got married and slowly just kind of left the program because to me I would reached my goal. I have a husband now. <laughs> and, uh, I'm such a shallow creature some days. And uh, I proceeded to gain a lot of weight. Proceeded. I mean, I was almost double the size I am today. And I don't mean tall, I mean white. Um, sloth has always been one of my defects of character. I was once evicted because I was growing maggots in my kitchen sink. I was just a very kind of slothful person. And one day I was in our, with my brand new husband in our brand new house, cleaning out, I always had a third bedroom so you could just throw boxes and books and stuff. I was cleaning out that room and I came across a flyer for my inner group, a list of meetings and some articles, and I opened the door and I saw this flyer and I remembered, it was like a flash of light, I remembered there were happy people in that room. I was a child of misery, truly, since the time I was about eight. I asked my mother one day, while I was in recovery, how did she deal with it? She said, by the time you were about 13 or 14, I figured out there was nothing I could do to help you. Because it didn't matter. It didn't matter how anybody else looked at the world or told me how to look at the world. I was a miserable person. And I just ate and ate and ate and ate. And that was a mass quantity eater. You have to eat a lot to get to 400 pounds. I don't care how tall you are. Um, so I thought, oh, those people, those people were happy and I'm not. Maybe I ought to go back to some meetings, Jeannie. And I did. I did. I started going back to meetings. I started going to this meeting on Friday night. I love crowds. I went to this Friday night Glendale meeting, and there were about 250, 300 people in the room every Friday night. You can, you can be anonymous in a room that large, which is, I think, why I liked large meetings at the time. And, oh, please, just give me five minutes. Okay. I'm good. And people were friendly. And I went in, and... I sat at tables. After a couple weeks, people started saving me seats. Um, there were people from all over Los Angeles, San Fernando, Foothill, which was the inner group I was in. So there were a lot of people in this auditorium. And I called about three weeks in, I called my cousin, who was with me, recycled the second time around. And I said, I've gone back to OA. And she said, you've gone back to OA? And I said, yes, I've gone back to OA. And she said, are you absent? And I said, oh, no, that does not work for me. And um, I'm not going to be absent until I can get some help. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family where you ask no one outside your family for help. No one. Not the neighbor, not the teacher, not anyone. I had no friends um, growing up. And so I knew I wasn't going to ask anyone. So my plan was to sit in that room, going meeting after meeting, trying to absorb whatever I could absorb, and try to stop being miserable about my life. This was a Wednesday night. Two days later, at the Friday night meeting, 
at the break. We used to have two hours meetings, which for me were a blessing because you don't eat for two hours if you're at a two-hour meeting. Um, this little woman from the San Fernando Valley, this is before cell phones where like tow chargers were a big deal. Um, if you had a landline. And uh, this little five-foot-tall black woman from the San Fernando Valley came up to me at break and she said, you look like you could use some help. The exact same line. You look like you could use some help. Would you like me to help you? I'm from the San Fernando Valley. If, you know, your phone bill is going to be a problem, I'll help you find someone else. I said, no. I put my hand on her hand. I said, no, you've been sent. And at that moment in time, I knew that she'd been sent to me. I knew. It was like the skies had opened. I knew at that moment in time that there was a power greater than myself in the universe. I had no idea what it was, but that there was a power greater than myself in the universe looking out for my best interest. That's all. Power in the universe greater than myself, looking out for my best interest. Because I had not, to that point in time, been looking out for my best interest. I've been stuffing my face and hurting my body and being a miserable human being. Okay, so here's the deal. She says, I'm not a morning person. She says, call me at 6.30 tomorrow morning. <laughs> I looked at her and I said, okay. And I got up and I called her at 6.30 tomorrow morning. She informed me of my food plan. <laughs> People handed out food plans in meetings at that point in time, and she gave me something called Gray Sheet. And uh, it was a no-carb, little vegetable, high-protein kind of food plan, as I recall. Um... And I eat gray sheet. I start to eat gray sheet. Now, this is, I, I don't hear people talk a lot about this in meetings. Um, but this is what happened, is that you go from eating mass quantities of any damn thing you'd like. Oh, I went home from that meeting. I used to eat, I'd be a late night eater. Sometimes I still have a late night stuff. Um, used to be a late night eater. I left the meeting. Went and got dinner, I got a pastrami sandwich, order of fries, I got home, started to eat, and I couldn't finish it. I couldn't even get halfway through it, threw the rest away. I knew something had happened. Clicked. Let's go. Um, I was like a, a heroin addict. You go from eating anything you want, mass quantities of food, to eating measured portions of food that is good for your body. You go through some withdrawals. Some withdrawals. It was bad. About a month into it, I said to her, I said, you know, this doesn't feel so good. <laughs> this doesn't feel so good. And uh, I said, I'm screaming at my child all the time. I'm screaming at my husband. This doesn't feel good at all. Now, I had grown up in a household with a screaming mom. My mom would just as soon scream as talk. In a, in a genteel manner. And uh, so that was interesting to me that that's where I went. And she, she said to me, why don't you abstain from screaming at your family? 
And I, that was such a novel idea to me. That idea would never have occurred to me. Because that's the environment I grew up in. Um, and I said, well, what an interesting idea. I think I'll try that. And I did that for a year. I think I broke it after a year. But never again was I a big screamer um, after that. So here's the truth for me. I've done the rest of the steps, but here's the truth for me. In fact, I have something in my wallet right now that says, for me, security and happiness is in surrendering the now moment. I just wrote it on the computer a couple of weeks ago, and it's been my little thing for the last couple of weeks. The truth for me is that rooted in steps one, two, and three um, is important to me. It's important to me. Because that's where the miracle happens for me. I'm not going to see any of my defects of character in a step 10 or a step 4, which be by the way, is kind of like, was my salvation. Took me over an, a year to write my inventory. Because I couldn't fill out anything. I was such a victim, I couldn't fill out anything in that fourth column. I couldn't see where I was self-centered, fearful, dishonest, anything. Um, but I know if I continually do the first three steps, I'll get there. And to align my will with God's will is the best thing I can do on any given daily basis. And I didn't come in here with um, a faith of any sort of magnitude. It was little. It was like just developed from that little seed of what happened on that Friday night and finding that sponsor. That I find if I continually surrendered, I would find the next miracle. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about what happened to me <clears throat> the first time I went to New York. And this is kind of like these, that story about being in that auditorium and this story is kind of how I live my life today. Oh, and I used to pray because I didn't know. I was so like ego-driven. I didn't know what God's will was at any given moment. So I love the big book because it says, we relax and if you don't know, relax and do nothing. Seriously. Chill, kick back, page 69. Relax and do nothing. And my prayer always was my higher power. If I was confused or my ego was in my ear, wow, 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 that I would say, God, please, I can't hear the forest for the trees. Make it as clear as the Hollywood sign. Make it as clear as the Hollywood sign because I can't see what your will is. I'm too invested in what I think should happen. So, I was about four or five years into the program, and this is the story where I learned my higher powers, infinite, infinite. Um, so I had a girlfriend call me up, and she says, I'm going to New York on a business trip. You want to come? Share the room? You just have to plan for your plane ticket and your expenses. I said, well, let me talk to my husband. I still had the husband at the time. I no longer have the alcoholic husband. Um, and I talked to him about it and thought maybe it might be okay, but I wasn't quite sure because it was like November and I'm a tax accountant. You asked me to go to Paris in April. I have plenty of money. November is kind of like I'm just trying to get to the season. And I decided that I would go. 
talked to a couple people, did my work, my prayers. I just said I would go. She called me about a month before the event and says to me, oh, my boss, he doesn't know if he's going to pay for the room or not. And I start to get immediately sick because my poor girl from East LA kicks in. And um, I thought, oh my God, that's another expense. I don't know if I could do that. Thanks. And I woke up the next morning and I clearly heard God's voice say this. You have to call her and tell her you don't know if you can afford to go. Are you kidding me? I was on my knees faster than you can say God. I said, you can't make me do it. I'm pounding my bed. My husband's looking at me like, I said, you can't make me do this. Really, that's embarrassing. That's not humbling, humiliating to tell somebody that you might not be able to afford to do something. I've learned very early on that it's better if you clearly hear it's God's will. The next step is obedience. Follow through. Because it's my best interest. I have to believe that when I see God's will clearly, it's going to be, in the long run, in my best interest. You know, I didn't think it was in my, long, my best interest long run to be eating gray sheep, but, you know, I lost a lot of weight very quickly. So I believe the universe knows what's in my best interest better than I do most days. Most days. Sometimes I balk. Sometimes, you know, I've resisted. But most days I do know that. So I called her and I said, well, that call was interesting yesterday. I don't know if I have to cover some of the hotel room that I can afford to go. I might not be able to afford to go. And it was a freeing statement. Once I got past my ego, it was a freeing statement. And uh, she says, I don't know what's going on with him. I said, Let's, we'll figure it out and don't worry. It. You know. So, and this whole time I'm having this, I love, I always have this fantasy about going to New York. I love the idea of being in New York and I had never gone. And so he did end up covering the hotel room and I went to New York and I thought everything was fine and I had this free floating anxiety the whole trip. And I was such a, I was such a, just a little away girl because I know what to do with fear. You surrender it. You read the big book. You pray. You meditate. You call somebody. And uh, so well, we wake up in New York the next day, and uh, it's a Sunday. And um, I'm an ex-Catholic as well, so we decided to go to my grandmother would have loved there. She was passed at the time. Um, go to St. Patrick's and light some candles. And I got up and I did my big boy work, had a nap, and a breakfast. This free-floating anxiety is still in my tummy. And, um, and then we go out to dinner that night and we go to Tavern on the Green, which on the holiday time is decorated beautifully. Beautiful big room of crystal chandeliers and niceties. And my poor girl from East L.A. is having a good time. And uh, she's all dressed up, and she's in this beautiful dining room. And I, I was still having this free flow and anxiety, and I'm saying, sometime during the meal, I checked out, and I said, God, I don't know what it is. I say the serenity prayer. If you, I don't know why you have me here. I want to enjoy myself. This is too much for me. It's beautiful here. Why am I not enjoying myself? Why am I still filled with fear? Why do you have me in New York? 
I left the table for a few minutes and went into the bathroom tavern on the green, 3,000 miles away from my home. And I walked in and this woman looks at me and she says, oh my God, I need to talk to you. I didn't know this woman. She says, I saw you speak in Los Angeles at Friday Night Glendale last year, and I need to talk. So all fear's gone. All fear's gone. You know, when I acknowledge that I'm not where I need to be, whether it's with a character defect, or my food, or just life in general, and I remember I have a higher power acting in my best interest at all times. And I surrender it. My life is good. It's the best. It's the best. It's the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's good. Thank you. Let's thank our speakers for sharing their experience, strength, and hope. <clears throat> and uh, can I have a time? What time is it now? Anybody? Oh, I'm sorry. It's 11.03. All righty. We have until 11.25 to, for Ask It Basket questions. Um, the first one, Jeannie, for you, please repeat the words on the card that you carry with you, something about serenity and happiness. I'm going to give my first one. exactly what it says. How long are we going to give for the What? How long are we going to give? Till 11.25. Um, I, love what, I love what Amy had to say about the index cards. I, tell my, I looked at her and smiled. I tell my babies to have index cards. Um, particularly of... Before you take that first compulsive bite, there should be five or six things on those in, at the index card of what you do first. And you should have many of those index cards. You should have one on your desk, one in your wallet, one on your refrigerator. What to do first before you take... I love the index card idea. It's a fabulous thing. Okay. My safety and security is in surrendering this present moment. That's all. In surrendering this present moment. That's what it says. Thank you. Uh, none of the other questions have a specific name, so I'm just going to ask you to step up to the mic. And the first, uh, next question is: How long did it take you to do your first step one? Um, hi, I'm Amy, compulsive overeater. Um, let's see. Um, I'm still doing my first step one. I mean, I think every day for me, it's about, um, it's, it, it's surrendering and it's acknowledging that I am powerless over food today. And it's something that I repeat a lot. Um, it's not like you know, there's writing exercises that they have. There's an OA workbook when you can a answer questions and so forth. But so much of what I've done in this program is is based on is based on faith. Sometimes I just need to um, um, just take the actions, act as if you know, act as if 
I believe I'm powerless over food and that my life had become unmanageable until my my brain and my heart and all those things also agree or on the same page with it. So um, I actually have no association whatsoever with a time, a time factor around um, doing step one. I'm Catherine. He, I've done several step ones. I honestly can't remember how long it took the first one. I do know that um, one of the things I've been really committed to in recovery is doing the work, doing the doing the action. And uh, so it might have to. I can't tell you how long it took, but I I do know that I would make sure I. Like a lot of us, I was at the time young, well, no, I was, I think I was married then and I had my daughter, real busy working and all that. But I would, um, I just remember setting a timer for like 20 minutes and, and that was before they had all the OA literature. So it was all through the big book and, and the 12 by 12. And I just remember I would set a timer and just start writing and answering the questions they have, like the food inventory and that kind of thing. And just remembering I'm just doing my personal best and not trying to make it perfect and not trying to, and, I, and writing it, of course, back then the computer thing wasn't an issue, but um, the importance of just getting it down on paper and not necessarily um, just the fact of doing it. And then the next day and the new... However long it took, doing my time, setting some time and just sitting down, even if it's kind of blank around it, and then going to my sponsor and asking for support and help. So that's, thank you. The next question, after you have triggered, after you get triggered and your life becomes unmanageable, what does unmanageability look like? Please provide an example of how you apply the first three steps. One, two, three. So what does a unmanageability look like and how do you apply the first three steps? I'll answer that. Last Friday night, I fell in my kitchen. Hence the little mobile mobile. Um, I was in extreme pain. I pulled two muscles to get off my floor. It was an incredibly painful experience. I walked over the couch. Before program, I would have been, poor me. Poor me, why does this happen to me? Oh, the, the world's against me. I immediately, after the pain subsided, was sitting on my couch, started to pray. Immediately. God, I have no idea why this is going on. I can only assume it's an opportunity to, like, be still with you. And that's the attitude I take with, with most things, is that if I find something's not working in my life, I go to God. And then sometimes, and I surrender it, and then sometimes it will take months of me surrendering something before I finally hit bottom and get rid of it. 
You know, and then I'm standing in my living room and I'm like, God, I don't care what happens. I surrendered the whole damn thing to you. I really don't care. You take it all. And that's when I find to like let go of whatever the big boogaboo is that's bothering me. But I got to the program not because I weighed almost 450 pounds. That was still manageable. Isn't that a sick thing? I got to this program because my life had become unmanageable. And when I saw that flyer of meetings, I thought, oh, there's hope. Something's going on. I can. I, I. I need to go find out. There's hope. But I try and I, immediately because nothing else really works, and try and figure it out. But nothing else really works. And so when I knew I, I was coming up here this weekend, um, I mean, it just kind of like something. I read into that thing. I figured out how to do that, and um, made sure that somebody else drove up here. <laughs> I wasn't like lifting my foot to put it on the brake for six, how, how long, 300 miles is, yeah, for six hours. So immediately things get taken care of just because I surrender it. God bothers me. How to find higher power? It doesn't make sense to me. Um, so for the person who, who wrote that, I'd actually um, suggest reading Step 2 in the AA 12 and 12 because it really talks about um, you know, the atheist and the agnostic and the person who had a belief, a strong belief in God, and then but never thought that that belief could actually apply to uh, the addiction. And um, what I have to say about that is um, I didn't know, I really had no idea what God was, but... Um, it was recommended to me that, you know, it's maybe it starts with um, just the people in the room, that there's an energy and a quality that I experience in a meeting room that, and what, that when I share, I'm sharing like my best self is sharing, whether I'm sharing and it's about um, uh, the solution or I'm sharing and it's in pain, there's something raw, true, and honest, which comes out of me during that time. And so for me, I started by using the group as my higher power, and I'm also a person who firmly believes in acting as if. Um, it, instead of me wondering whether there is a God or there isn't, I started to look around me and say, well, where do I see the miracles? And I would see people who were like... Um, you know, and it was hard for me to see it in myself, so I didn't count as a miracle. Like, I had to identify it outside of myself. And it was like I had a friend in program who I'd known for a number of years, and um, she couldn't stop throwing up. She just couldn't stop. I mean, she went to a meeting a day. Every meeting I saw her in, she would say, yep, I did it again. Yep, I did it again. And that happened. And she, she was writing, and she worked on her spiritual program and did all these things. And one day she came into the room and said, I didn't throw up in the last 24 hours. I, I didn't. And then she came back the next day, and she said the same thing. And then she started to say it a day at a time for a long period of time. And I said, that's a miracle. I watched this person. I know what she's been doing, and she could not stop. She stopped. I believe in whatever happened in that situation. I can believe in that. And that's how the kernel of my higher power really started. And then acting as if. I had to act as if because I didn't, I didn't believe. I'm going to act as if I have a higher power 
that actually cares about me, that actually cares whether I'm eating compulsively today or not, because God wants me to do God's will today. How do I align my will with God's? And if I act as if, some people say it's hypocritical, they give an argument. They have, they have a lot of objection. There's a lot of objection handling in the big book and the 12th step. And they say, yeah, a hypocrite. Yeah, we're really hypocrites too, right? Like we're eating all this food and we're making all these proclamations. How could it be any worse to believe in a power greater than ourselves that really does restore us to sanity, that we see the miracle happening, the people around us, and that we know people who have found happy, joyous, and free? Now, that is a higher power I can believe in. I don't know what that higher power looks like. Male, female, nature, whatever, whatever version it is. So um, they talk about all you need is this open-mindedness. They talk about open-mindedness and humility. And all you need is just a crack of those things, and all things are possible. So if you read step two, AA 12 and 12, nothing I say is original. It's all, I take it. I take it all from the literature. Thanks. Hi, I'm Catherine. I'll just piggyback on that. Um, well, f- I made food my higher power. It really was, and where did that get me? You know, And that's all I knew. So for me, um, it is a journey, and for me, and this program's about action, and the action is when I think of the second and third step, it's okay, I'm going to turn this over and to something, and sometimes it feels like I really get it and I really understand. And as I do my um, personal, you know, I'm expanding my spiritual walk, I get confused about that. And that's okay. And it's a mustard seed of faith sometimes for me. Or I just do it anyway. The God of my non-understanding. I'll say, I don't understand this. But I know it's, I know it's not me. And it comes through, and some, and it comes through people. Um, and as much as I can see miracles in people, I forget. Or even in myself. Um, it's, I'll see a... a a smile on someone's face or an energy they exude and I go I know that it's that because that person has God in their life something in their life whether it's and it's not necessarily God I have friends who don't believe in a God but they're it's spiritual and um so that's that that is how I do it because if I start questioning it it just gets me in trouble. It gets me in my head. I feel like it's that that negative part coming in, that logic, which is this this isn't logical a lot of the times. It, it's about trust, faith. Um, it's it's um, it's letting go and constantly redoing that. So, uh, especially lately. I mean, I've done that for a while, but especially lately because the whole surrender thing and the God thing sometimes and. I just go, you know what, just, I know this works, just do it. I made a decision to do it. This is how I do my life. I do it through the 12 steps. Okay, what am I supposed to do? Just do it. And it um, it always works. It doesn't look like I want it to work, and it doesn't, suddenly I don't have like this. Like today, I didn't have this, aha, suddenly I'm doing step two, turning and surrendering, and now I'm so totally comfortable in this room, and making everyone laugh, and no, none of that happened. But... I did it, you know, and I know it was God doing it, not something doing it, not me. And I believe, you know, I call it God. So. Hi, 
I don't know why. I have been told that you can't think your way into right action, but I can act my way in right into right thinking. So what actions can I take to believe in and follow the creator when I don't want to because I don't want to give up the food? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just, um, I guess I'll just point back to, I think, what Catherine and I just were even talking about, which is whether it's food or really anything else, you can fill it in the blank, food, alcohol, shopping, reading, drugs, uh, gambling, debt. Um, it is, for me, it is about, it's about acting as if, and it's also about that piece about desperation. Like, I don't know what the magic bullet is. I don't know what the magic bullet is. But I know that if I follow the suggestions of this program, I go to meetings, I make phone calls. Uh, even if you're not abstinent, we can set up chairs at a meeting, uh, help set up coffee or tea. Um, that, for me, over time, those kinds of actions, and they're actions really involving service, um, there, there'll be a way out, and that way out will be through. And it talks about in the big book when the uh, desire to drink was so strong, and what did the alcoholics do when they were on the road? They went into a phone booth, they opened up the phone booth and the phone directory and said, okay, let me find all the pastors, ministers, religious leaders here because they have got to know who the drunks are in this town. I, I'm going to start working with one of those drunks. And we get to do the simple thing of sharing our story and what it is like for us. Even if you are not, even if I'm not abstinent or leading the life that I want to be leading, if I'm coming to meetings and I'm doing other things, I have something to share with somebody else. It's not that I'm supposed to share the answers. It's just to let you know that you're not alone, and I'm willing to do that service for you. And in doing that service, coming out of myself, miraculous things happen. But we don't know if they happen or not unless we do them. You ask for action. Don't give up the food. Nobody here is going to go to your house and make you give up food. But keep coming back because it will happen. And it will happen in exactly the dividing ordered time. The exact moment you need to surrender, it will happen for you. That's all I have to say. Keep coming back. How does your higher power talk to you? When I ego is not in full bloom, I have a clear channel. Um, just like I hear voices in my head that don't sound like my ego, that don't sound like they want to destroy me, that don't sound like you're a bad person, you haven't done it perfectly. It's a very much a loving, powerful voice. Um, I'll tell you a really quick story. My, my morning routine changes from time to time, but there was a time... Oh, maybe about a year and a half ago, my morning routine was I would get up in the morning, have my cup of coffee, do a half an hour of meditation, and get on with my day. 
I was in the kitchen this particular morning. I put the coffee on and I noticed I didn't have this lovely ring on, which was a very generous gift for my boyfriend. And it was kind of new at the time, the ring. And I didn't have it. And I thought, oh, where is this thing? So I go to my nightstand. I only put it in two places, the coffee table or the nightstand. I go to my nightstand. It's not there. I go to the coffee table. It's not there. I live alone. It's not disappearing. And then I thought, I, I, I go back to the bed and check the nightstand again. I thought, my stomach's rumbling. I feel so much fear. I've lost the ring. I, you know, was it, my boyfriend's rather frugal, so it was a big deal for him to get this for me. And um, I'll be really quick. And I, th- and I sat there. And in that moment, I heard God say, hysteria will get you no place. And I said... You know, you're right. Hysteria will get me no place. I said, I'm going to go about my routine, God. You know how much I love this ring. You know how important it is to me. When it's ready for me to find the damn thing, I'll find the thing. And so I go and I get my cup of coffee that's now brewed. And I go sit down on my couch on the coffee table. And three inches from where I look for the ring, it was there. How or what ways... Do you use step three to work on the fear that God's plan will not be your plan? You want your plan, so hold tight, and you know it doesn't work. Okay. I had a baby once say to me, I was, I was giving her direction. She was in a kind of fear-based place about something. And she said almost the same thing to me. She said, you have more, and she says to me, you have more faith than I do. And there's probably, I don't know, about 25 years difference between us and the program. And I said, I have more faith because I've practiced it more times. You just keep doing the same thing and the faith will build on itself. Because it, for me, the choice is simple. I can either live my life based on fear, in which I need to like eat an enormous amount of food on 800 pounds before I die, or I can live my life on faith. It's pretty black and white for me. I can live with fear, or I can live with faith. And that's the end of my story. And that is the end of our time. It's now time to close uh, the, que- the session. Please stand and join hands as we close with... <clears throat> I get a choice here. Always promise I put my hand in yours. And I would like to thank Isabel for being the timer. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you and Lynn. I put my hand in yours, and together we can do what we could never do alone. No longer is there a sense of helplessness. No longer must we each depend upon our own unsteady willpower. We are all together now, reaching out our hands for power and strength 
greater than ours. And as we join hands, we find love and understanding beyond our wildest dreams. Keep coming back, it works. Thanks. I love to learn how to do high sparks. It's beautiful the way you have your sparks. Um,